and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source for the long haul. Who are we? Where did we come from? Where are we going? How could I look slimmer? Very weird question. We'll get to why I asked that in a second. First, I want to make sure you know who the other panelists are. I am, of course, Richard Litauer, your host and driver today. Hello, everyone. And then we have Eric Berry joining us. Eric, how are you doing? Doing great. Happy to be here. Excited. Excellent. Glad to have you on, Eric. And of course, glad to have on our two guests today. We have the CTO and CEO of Slim.ai. Let's start with the CEO today. So John Emeril calling today from Boston. John, how are you? Great. Thanks for having us on the show. Awesome to be here. Great to have you. Thank you so much for coming. John has a lot of experience as a technologist over 25 years. Um, leading product development. He's done a head of product for Cisco's cloud security business unit. He joined Cisco by an acquisition from a Boston-based SAS security vendor called CloudLock, previously a senior VP at Trustwave, and uh, a bachelor's and an MBA from MIT Sloan School of Management. So very educated Bostonian joining us today. And from the other side of the country, across the seas of amber waves of grain, we have Kyle Quest joining us from Seattle. Kyle is the CTO of Slim.ai. Kyle, how are you doing? Pretty good. Hello, everybody. Yeah, it's the cloud capital of the world. So it makes sense to be here for the CTO. It does make a lot of sense. Kyle also has a lot of experience. Otherwise, he wouldn't have the CTO position, of course. He's been building applications and platforms using many different cloud service providers and even more programming languages in the early days of cloud computing. He created Docker Slim to simplify the DX with containers and to empower developers to build and run containerized cloud native applications. Passionate about open source, developer experience, distributed systems, big data security. And of course, we will get into all of this during this podcast. I just wanted to give you, oh listeners, a bit of a background as to who these two people are. So I said that you were from Slim.ai. John, what does Slim.ai do? Slim.ai is a company that focuses on developer experience. So we're all about giving developers tools that help them build better cloud native applications. It's pretty high level conceptually, but what we recognized after building several pretty successful big cloud native applications through the years is that our developers, the folks bashing their keyboards to get the value built for your company and through the software they build, we're having more and more work land on their plates from the rest of the organization that was sort of, I'd call it overheaded friction for them. This idea of shift left ships a lot of bad stuff left to the developers. And we're trying to help them not have that stuff they don't want to be doing, all that overhead. One specific area we focus on a lot is just helping them understand how to build containers, containerized applications, sets of containers as applications. With a lot less friction there means, how do I produce something that contains the code that I wrote to become the app? How do I make its journey from my desk through CICD and into prod in a way where there's a lot less rework, a lot less, I'd say, infrastructure-specific knowledge you need? It's basically fitting that app, using best practices in a sustainable way to get to prod and run well. More secure, faster, smaller, less overhead needed to run, and Let's uh, round trip delays on someone downstream saying, hey, could you just change it like that? Or I found this vulnerability here, or it's not quite as secure as I need it. Giving developers tools so they can answer those questions while they're building and produce stuff that just works. And that's really what we're all about. 
I like that a lot. Uh, Kyle, do you want to expound upon that a bit more? I'd like to focus on the AI part of it because it's probably not what you think it is. AI stands for application intelligence and application intelligence is the core concept and what sets us apart from the tools, most tools out there. And those tools are infrastructure centric and there's a huge difference. And application intelligence is really a way to achieve autonomous infrastructure. Sounds a little abstract, but the idea there is that we capture the application intelligence we focus on the application and then we can harness the knowledge to automate the things that are manual right now. And that's how a lot of the things John talked about are possible. Could you elaborate on that just a tiny bit? What aspects would you go in and modify? Is this part of the container build or maybe I just don't quite understand what you're saying there? So the idea there is to understand the application, what it does, how it's structured, its dependencies and what it needs. And then when you capture all of that information, you can automate the activities around that. For example, you can automatically generate the infrastructure to support the application when you deploying it in the cloud. And the original goal was to simplify the process of delivering applications to production. So you have a, a basic POC container initially, and then it's developer friendly. It has a lot of stuff and not optimized, definitely far away from what's needed in production. And usually you go through a lot of manual steps that require a lot of domain knowledge. You need to know how to optimize the images, how to structure the Docker files in a certain way. So you take advantage of caching, you don't get an extra junk, and then you need to understand the dependencies for the application. So there's a lot of manual work there, especially if you want to leverage some of the advanced features in Docker with the security profiles, you have to manually author them and all of that. So by analyzing the application and focusing on the application, you can optimize the Docker images, the container images uh, based on your application needs. So you have only the, the bare minimum that your application needs. So you don't need to manually go through a lot of steps to reverse engineer your application because you might know what the application does at the high level, but the internals, you might be surprised what's going on there. You, you don't necessarily know about the internal details yourself. And you kind of need to know that if you want to build seccom profiles, for example, you need to know what kind of system calls your application makes. How do you know that? There's a way to do it the hard way, but you really shouldn't need to. It's like back in the day, you would write applications in assembly. That's the hard way, but nobody does that anymore. And we're kind of in that phase when it comes to cloud native. There's all this uh, cloud native infrastructure and we're doing things the hard way. We're creating, optimizing the container images and containers is just an example of a cloud native infrastructure construct. There are a lot of other constructs. And they have similar problems. You go upward, down the stack, IAS, pass, uh, serverless, you have the exact same problems. So you need to know way too much about the infrastructure. You need to do way too much manually, and it takes a lot of time. And you need to be an expert, and it takes forever. There are a lot of the concepts, best practices. They sound good on paper, but it's really hard to get there because the expectations are too high. One of the best practices there is to only include the things that you need. I'm not aware of anybody who puts extra junk in their containers or anything in the cloud. People usually have stuff that they think they need and or the concept of least privilege. You might have some ideas what kind of permissions you need. 
I love how in depth you're going. It's really excellent. Not everyone here is going to be familiar with cloud native stuff. And so one of my questions that I have just shows a follow up from that work, which sounds awesome, is who is primarily using Slim.ai and the tools which you're building? Are you looking at like large companies with large dev teams that have a huge amount of DevOps going on or SMEs or solo developers doing work on cloud native? As of right now, it's targeted for developers, individual developers, and that's who uses it. Docker okay. Slim has, we estimate, well, it's got approaching 12,000 stars and it's got, I'd estimate around 40, 50, 60,000 users, something like that, more than 350,000 downloads. And these are devs, often yeah. the tech lead dev on a team or someone who works in an environment where it's like you build it, you run it. And they're responsible for writing the code and getting the stuff to work in in some production environment. Either it's their own personal stuff or it's stuff they use at work. And we know it's used pretty liberally both ways. And we know lots of folks put Docker Slim into their CI, CD. So we have a lot of knowledge and confidence that it's being used by developer types. They ran the range. We did some analysis of its usage and saw that people working on, say, Node applications, JavaScript front-end kind of applications, they use it quite a bit that Rust developers use it quite a bit. Go developers use it quite a bit. Python developers who write analytic applications using R and Python, these kinds of things. Pretty popular among those. All of those folks suffer from large container problems, security problems. So they use Docker Slim as kind of a Swiss army knife to fix that up. So that's who uses that. And uh, Slim, the SaaS parts that we've built today, also built for the developer. And we have nothing to sell today. So it's all free use. Everything's free, including SaaS. And, and of course, open source is always free and will be forever. Free in every way possible. So the developers there are folks that opt in and just sign up. They use it, have a contingency that uses it in concert with Docker Slim as a companion. And that was kind of how it's built to extend the value of Docker Slim and folks that just use it for its basic feature set. But it's all developers, really. That is so cool to have a developer-centered product. I'm looking at Docker Slim now. Yes, you do have a crap ton of stars, basically 12,000. Contributors, you have around 38, which is a lot for a project like this, which is based in one company. You have contributors across the spectrum who are working on this. It sounds like a lot of what you said, Kyle, went a bit over my head. And that's not because I'm a bad developer. I just haven't been here before. But it sounds like you're abstracting very well to solve the issues that these developers have. Can you talk a bit about the governance of Docker Slim? and how you ended up having more contributors contribute to it and how it maintains itself as a free project, given the amount of work you're putting in? Yeah, that's a good question. And when it comes to open source and open source projects, there are a lot of different types of projects. And most of the time you hear about the big projects like Kubernetes, Linux kernel, and all that. And they have a lot of stakeholders and people working full time. It's definitely not one of those projects. I would say that the majority of projects, open source projects, are not like that. And they're a smaller scale. You don't have a lot of contributors. And relatively speaking, relative to Kubernetes, obviously, it's not a lot. And it's challenging to maintain a project. And whenever possible, you're trying to make it easy for others to contribute. There are many ways to contribute. It's not just about code. It's also about feedback and ideas and suggestions and harvesting all of that as much as possible is is a key. That's why, for example, Docker Slim has multiple channels for people to interact with. And so if somebody's using Slack and somebody uses Discord, they'll send a message on Discord or Gitter. So it's important to be able to 
be in the communities where developers live and where they can provide feedback. And, and really, obviously, we're still early on, but one of the efforts is to make it easy to get started. And there are several ways to do that. One is making it easy to create your own environment. And one tool in the tool chain there is Gitpod. I know you had discussions about Gitpod. It's a great tool. You don't need a new environment. So what does it mean for contributors? It means it's easy to have an environment and it's easy to contribute to the project. And another thing is to provide more information about the code and how to get started. And we're working on that, but there is definitely a lot more. There are a couple of videos, walk the code walkthroughs, and they have been pretty useful on a number of recent contributors about, you know, more documentation. One of the main asks is around the high level design. So people understand how it works. Another idea to improve the contribution opportunities is plugins, for example, with with Terraform and Kubernetes, they leverage plugins and it makes it easier for people to contribute because you don't need to understand the whole code base. So finding those opportunities to make it easier for people to start contributing and to add a new value in a way that doesn't require them to be experts. It's kind of a part of that recipe, but we're in no way where we should be. It's a journey and it feels like everybody's doing it the right way and they're doing everything perfectly but in reality that's not the case most projects they have a lot more on their to-do list and their wish list than they can so it's a journey and that's one of the reasons why we have the company we want to provide more support and more opportunities and more value around the project open source project because that way we can sponsor additional contributions and then we can promote the project And we can also make it easier for new users to use. And then if they know about the project, if they understand the project, that they use the project, they can contribute to the project either by providing feedback and all of that. So it's a journey and it's a long journey and it's going to get better. I love that. It is a journey. Every open source project is a journey. This one seems like it's actually midway. It doesn't seem that small to me. I know it may seem small to you, but the amount of users you have is fantastic. John, I have a business question for you. You said everything is free all the time. This is, of course, different from the old, you know, free as in freedom, not free as in beer. How are you two paying yourselves and your developers if it's free? Where's the money coming from? Yeah, I'll I'll qualify that. In open source, right, we don't intend to monetize open source. We build open source. We believe in that model as a sort of foundational way to build value for developers. And we know that if you want to connect with developers, you have to do it through code. You have to do it by being, I'll say, there's a generosity principle here. We work in a way that is really designed around interacting and giving to developers so that we can promote some of the ideas we have about solving problems in the domains we care about. But it's also knowing that there's an amazing opportunity to benefit the world. It's a bit benevolent, but by open source software. And and that's the way to solve real problems. And we're passionate about the problems we're solving. Like, Making developers productive is like a real passion play for us. Like it's the core of our being, having been developers our whole lives and having been folks who work and and work with software developers. It's like our playground. We love it. We want to help all developers be better. Along the way, as we saw this journey, and we've built a lot of commercial software in our lives, saw an opportunity to build a company around this and also have a commercial perspective in the business. So the open source stuff, as I said, will always be free. We build free SaaS too that complements it. We're also delivering value there. Our commercial intentions with our company are going to be sort of the, I'd say, 
SaaS software plus. So the stuff we're building in the cloud, it's proprietary software. There's parts of it that benefit the open source users if they want to matriculate into a, I'll call it a commercial usage pattern where they're interested in using our SaaS software. And then that will be an area where if folks love it enough and they want to use it at work and it's part of them delivering value in their own value chains, great. There'll be a way for you to pay us. There'll be commercial offering there. We'll never jeopardize the sort of open source roots. It's always going to be a very distinct and intentional line of that open source foundation we have. And it's not monetizing open source in our case by like building support contracts for the open source. We're not in that business. That open source stuff is sort of like untouchable in our minds. It's like, that's the free stuff out there. And we also, again, for that free SaaS, which is, I'd say, the, the, the entry point SaaS experience, that also will be free forever until you reach a certain usage pattern and then folks will pay us. So we've raised money. We've been successful in building companies before. We raised a bunch of money through the venture capital route, and we have a pretty robust plan around both sustaining our open source world, investing more there, and building our commercial offerings. And initially, it was all nights and weekends. It started as a hackathon project, and then I kept going and kept building, and it got traction, and it got better. I love that. Kyle's understating the amount of his own personal energy and time and work that he invested. It's a really uh, awesome project that he fostered. And fundamentally, it started by solving my own problem. And a lot of open source projects start like that. There's a problem, you want to solve it. And when you solve your own problem, you understand the problem more and you understand the value that you get out of that. And then it ended up that the problem resonated with others and the solution was also something that looked interesting. And one of the interesting things about Docker Slim and what we're trying to do with Slim is that we want to work with what you have. We're not trying to introduce a new interface, a new construct, like a new high level infrastructure interface, or we're saying that, hey, throw away the tools you have and use these new tools. And that's a hard sell because whenever you ask people to change developers or any people, it's hard. And that was one of the reasons why Docker Slim got popular because it didn't require you to change how you compose your container images. You could still use the same base image. It's okay to use Ubuntu as your base image. Don't feel ashamed. I will get you the optimized image that you really want. So it's okay to use the developer-friendly container images. And then we help you automate all the way to a production-ready container as opposed to doing it the other way. If you look on the internet about the alternative options, they tell you, use this base image you never heard of with things that you have to do that you didn't expect to do, like recompiling your packages and all of that. It just anytime you ask developers or any people to change, it's a hard sell and it's really hard to make it happen. So I guess I'm one of your target customers. I'm a developer. I've been working with containers for, I think, about four years now, primarily Docker. And I have noticed maybe it's like that scenario where when you buy a new car, the only car you see on the road is your own. But it seems like there's been a huge uptake in containerizing your development environment. And that's what we've been doing in our work. And I was wondering, do you see a shift in the community to where there is more attention and possibly new avenues that containerization is providing? 
I just wanted to say that using containers locally is an interesting pattern because it provides reproducibility and it's much easier to have a working development environment when you leverage containers. Now you don't have to deal with those snowflake setups that are hard to create. Every time when you join a project, a new company, a new team, you spend a lot of times trying to set up your environment. By leveraging this uh, container-based environment, you cut down that time significantly. And that's only one part of it. There's a lot more uh, there and interesting developments with, with Gitpod, for example, that kind of take that concept and they make it virtual. So it's great to have a virtualized environment, a containerized environment, but you may not necessarily have enough resources locally to run it. So you end up either running your virtual workspace in the cloud or you end up with a hybrid setup where some parts of your setup is local and then it's connected to a cluster in the cloud so that you're blurring the lines between your local environment and the cloud and you leverage the container-based infrastructure for that because it's a good abstraction. It's a good abstraction. But there are some rough edges there. It's not always straightforward to work with a containerized environment because you know you have your code and you connect to it through an IDE and that's it. And now when you have containers, now you have to go through additional steps. How do you make it work in a container? So there's a gap there that a number of tools and vendors are trying to address, but there's definitely lots of value in it where you can leverage the new constructs around containers to simplify how you build your applications, how you have a consistent way to represent your environment. I see another motivation coming around the idea that developers should be working with something that's as similar to the target deployment as they can possibly have. And the, you know, Kubernetes is the cloud native operating system and containers are the unit of software. So the more developers work with the actual unit of shipping software, the more they're in tune with the requirements to get that stuff running over there in prod. So that's, I think, a huge benefit. And we see our users and, and many of the people that you know interact with us a lot in our community, really with that motivation. It's like, how do I produce better software to, for prod? Well, work with software that looks like what goes in prod. And that just makes things better. Do you see the developer environment of the future primarily being in the cloud? I'd say it would be hybrid. And you'd want a certain level of access, low level access to certain components where the rest of it is kind of supporting infrastructure that you don't necessarily care about. And that's a common pattern where you as a developer, you're working on a service and you want to have that kind of closer insight into it and closer access to it. But then there's a lot of other stuff that you might need and you still need it to have a working service, but you don't need to run it locally. But if you have everything in the cloud, that might be a little challenging because I'm going to use Gitpod as an example. It took them a while to add support for Docker to run Docker in their environment. So there are going to be restrictions in terms of what those cloud environments provide because of security, multi-tenancy, and all that. First, I want to say that we love Gitpod. They're awesome. We've had Jeff Huntley on the show before. I dropped that in the show notes for those of you who want to check out that episode. It was fantastic. I haven't had to work with cloud stuff directly. One of the things I have often wonder about cloud that I'm not sure about is it seems like it only works for very large projects or projects which are actually interested in paying other large projects to host their stuff. For me, the cloud means hosting it on Amazon Web Services. Amazon is not a company I want to support as an individual interested in in ethically minded business practices. This is one of the reasons why I like open source. So one of the questions I have for you is, 
How do you see that question? Because I know you're interested in open source and you're interested in making sure that developers have access to tools that they want to develop on. But when you think of the cloud, I think of really large business practices. I'm just curious what your thoughts are there. If you could help me learn more. Maybe I'm wrong. So there's definitely a trend there. Most of the popular cloud providers are big companies. Amazon, Google, Microsoft, and all of that. And what makes it easy to use them is that they manage it for you. But a lot of cloud native components, that's not necessarily the only way. You can have a self-hosted setup. You can run your own Kubernetes in a co-location services. And that's actually a model some companies use. And I wouldn't say WhatsApp is a good example, but they're an example where they use physical servers and they run their software. The nice thing about it is that you're not locked in to Amazon, Google. You can take Kubernetes, you can run it in, on your own hardware or co-located hardware, and you'd be doing the exact same thing. And that's because of open source projects like Kubernetes, Knative on top of that, if you want serverless on top of Kubernetes, OpenFast, another option to have serverless. So a lot of those open source projects make it possible for you to own your stack and to run where you need to run it, where you want to run it. So if you don't want to run it on Amazon, you can run it somewhere else. And you don't need to be a big company to leverage a lot of those tools internally. I know smaller teams, they use Kubernetes, for example, quite successfully. But yeah, in, in some cases, they, they use their own uh, hardware. So yeah, you have more options with open source, thanks to open source. Cool. I just learned something new. So thank you. I wasn't aware if you could run cloud stuff natively on your servers. That makes a lot more sense to me. And now I feel yep. like this is a much easier place for me to access. So thank you for that. Another question I have about sort of larger, more abstract things is you said you started this as a hackathon, which is the coolest. I love it when people do that and make them into awesome businesses. Then you went and got venture capital often have short returns. They're looking for five year, 10 year. They're looking for exits. One of my questions I have is how are you maintaining your core value of helping developers do better while also seeking to deal with the VCs that you've dealt with? Are they really good VCs? If so, how did you find them? Those are the questions I have around the business model side. We have amazing partners, investment partners. That's the start, right? The best developer-focused investors. We've been pretty successful in our past. They had the opportunity to pick who we want to work with. And we pick people who understand these business models. Pretty straightforward. They understand cool. the value you get by building from the bottom up with developers, building a, a sustainable business that begins with open source software and, and developer love. And so they understand and they know what we're all about because we didn't sell them a bill of goods. We told them exactly who we are from the beginning and we matched well. So yeah, these are companies that are used to being patient and building great communities and then building great products and then building great companies. Sort of in that art. Yeah, they understand it and they want us to do it. Yeah. For example, one of the companies is Bold Start. And they, they Ed Sims talks a lot about how long it takes to build a community. And it's a long game. It's not about getting immediate returns. And it's about investing in the bottom-up approach because that's how you get a business model that's scalable. You get to the users, you provide value. And then you monetize on top of that when you get to the enterprise use cases and the, the uh, team use cases. And look at the companies that exist that gave developer love from their beginning and, and have built great sustainable businesses on top of that, but really tried to do their best to not compromise the open source 
value they produce and it works. It works in the, open, in the market. It's a real business model and you can do both. So billions and billions of dollars of value created on the commercial side with millions and millions of developers feeling the love. And these things are not divergent. These are things that can coexist and companies can do well with even this kind of mindset of developer first. Awesome. It is good to find investors who have that mindset. I do know they exist. We had a developer on the podcast, Dave Gandy, who also found investors that were similar, which is really cool. Uh, It's great to see when people are happy with the investment that goes in. That isn't always the case, which is why I feel obliged to ask and why I sort of asterisk in my head every time I hear VC and developer together. One of my questions is building communities. So you've mentioned before, everything is free. There are other ways for you to contribute. I love that you called out the code is not the only way. Mention 38 contributors. That's a low number. That's just the GitHub contributors number. That's not the number of people in the community. It's always larger than that. And I'm glad that you know that too. I'm curious for other people who are building forks and or building side projects off of Docker Slam, off of other projects that you have, how are you enabling them to end up getting their own funds, their own VC connections, their own companies set up? Is there anything you're doing to give back to the communities themselves? One of the things we're trying to invest in and where we're trying to be intentional is supporting the projects that we leverage. And recently we had uh, discussions around different contributions where we asked people in the company, hey, what are the projects you want to support? And then we would contribute to those projects. So we want to have this done in an ongoing fashion where we, we, every year we contribute to the projects we benefit from and what we want to be able to get to. So that's kind of the downstream contribution. We also want to be able to build the ecosystem on top of the open source we have, but we still need to do more there. You know, I mentioned plugins, and this is something that will enable some of that, where it's kind of like a toolkit that you can use to build whatever you want to. So being able to support the upstream projects, uh, it means that the core open source components we have get used even more. So this is an area for us to invest in, a strategic area to get more adoption because uh, everybody uh, benefits. We benefit and they benefit, but that's where we need to do more work. It's uh, again, still early on in terms of what we're doing there, but we're already trying to contribute to the downstream projects financially. Very early on in the formation of Slim.ai, when we had you know funds to actually do stuff beyond nights and weekends, we also invested in, in, in community advocate for the company. And this person, there's no boundaries for this gentleman and our team in support of him. So we have Twitch channels, they span different topics. There's a lot of how-to. There's a lot of stuff around trying to teach people what the open source does or helps them understand it or become better users of it, become contributors to it. And there's no question we won't answer and there's no help we won't give. So, so someone says, hey, I want to take that thing and do something with it. They just come right into our community. So we're always there on Discord. Whatever you want. What do you need? How can we help you? It's uh, you want to extend it, you want to add to it, you want to fork it, you want to do something with it. You know the license. Uh, let's do whatever they want. Let's do whatever they want. So we're happy to help them. It's all good, and and we have people that are there to help. And one of the areas we're investing in is examples. So one of the goals is to have an example of how you can improve your application, how you can optimize your application, containerized application with Docker Slim and Slim with 
every possible example on the internet. On GitHub, there's a template project. We want to make sure that there is an example for that. For each project you can find on GitHub, we want to be able to, with, with the Docker file, we want to be able to provide that kind of enhanced version that shows you this is how you can benefit from the project. And you can use that as a starting point or for an existing project. One uh, recursive benefit here is that the things we build at Slim and in Docker Slim are tools that help other people build better software. That's all we do is build stuff to help you make your own software better. And there's lots and lots of people in our community who are using Docker Slim to actually understand their open source so they can produce better open source, containerized versions of open source. So it's often that we're helping through Docker Slim, another open source developer build a better open source project that they can then give to other developers. So I personally helped uh, one of our prominent community members who's always on helping us out to help him optimize, actually reduce the size of an R and shiny container that he is a community advocate for. He does an open source podcast about building Python analytic applications in the open source community. He's like a notable guy in that space. And he works with us to help those containers that he's promoting into his open source be better. I think there's a Again, in, in the mission to help developers be better and, and do better work, that's, that's really the core of our business and our open source efforts. That's a cool cycle. Building tools that make all of the developers build better software is, is a, I think, a good way to amplify these benefits. And that's really fun, including our own developers who are building software and make help other people make better software. So it's like awesome feedback cycle, feels good, is good, works good, all that. And the building better software message aligns well with the current supply chain discussions that are popular now, because fundamentally it provides you with visibility to understand what you have and how things can be improved. And that it also provides a way to optimize your application and all of that. And one of the, for example, Docker Slim is, is mentioned in the supply chain best practices that as a tool that you can leverage. So, so it's a value on the open source side is virtues because you help other open source projects to be better and but it applies the same to your personal projects or your commercial projects so it's it's all about providing value to developers to like john said to build better software and containers is just a starting point the problem is universal and yeah we want to expand to to help you with serverless to help you with your ias and other things i have two follow-up questions one of them is that you mentioned that you've took an internal poll, where should we contribute money to? Was that based off of Dwayne O'Brien's Indeed work with the FOSS fund at all? Have you heard of that at all? It's okay if you haven't. It wasn't something like that. It was mostly identifying the components and libraries that we use and find valuable and then contributing using the channels that those projects have. Because each project, bigger projects especially, they have different ways to contribute. And sometimes they have it on their GitHub page. They have those contribute buttons. So we're just getting started there. And, and if there's a fun and a more structured way to do it, that can benefit multiple projects. That's definitely also something that we would be interested in uh, exploring. I love that. Autochthonous desires to just give back are the best. I wish I had more time because I, I want to spend like an hour asking what's hard. Because both of you have made it sound like, well, yeah, it's pretty simple. You're, you're good people. Then you have a good project. Then you get good money. Then you give it back to good people. Then everyone wins. It's like, oh, 
well, why doesn't everyone just do that? So I just want to thank you for your eloquence and generosity. It's been really interesting hearing about this. I do want to know what's hard, but we are wrapping up on time. And so instead, I'm going to ask, where can people follow along with Slim? Where can they get involved with your communities? Well, you can go to slim.ai and that pretty much gives you space to go everywhere. Or you can go to docker-slim, Kyle's project on GitHub and there's tons of good stuff there. Either way, those are two you know, popular ways, but you know, lots of folks come in through the open source, find us and then go other places once they are happy. Cool. And you can go to the show notes to read more about some of the links we've had and also their Twitter handles. Amaral, that's A-M-A-R-A-L underscore John. Yep. And KCQ on Twitter, our Twitter handles for John and Kyle Quest. It's been great having you both. Don't go just yet. This is the part of the show that's always a bit out of left field. Spotlight is where we highlight projects, people, things, aliens, I don't know, anything else, which we feel like need love, want some care, or that we just want to point out to other people because this really helped us out in the past. This is the beloved tradition started by Eric Berry. So Eric, what is your spotlight today? In the context of the podcast, I'd like to spotlight one of my favorite tools, which is called Lazy Docker. It is a pretty amazing way to manage your Docker instances and view your logs across a project that has tons of different containers. And it's built by Jesse Duffield. So you can get it at GitHub, Jesse Duffield slash Lazy Docker. Excellent. My spotlight today is going to be somewhat relevant, actually. Peter Van Nordenen is the director of growth, I believe, senior director of growth at Slim.ai. AI. And I went to OspoCon slash Embedded Systems Fest, whatever, by Linux, by the LinuxCon in Seattle a couple months ago. And I went around to all of the official looking booths that looked very official indeed. And I asked each of them really tough questions on open source. I didn't care who they were. I was just like, who are you? How are you giving back? How do you justify your lives to developers? And Peter was one of the only people who actually was like, Actually, we're doing pretty good on that. And that's how this podcast started. And I just want to applaud the fact that he was able to take a jerk attendee. I really enjoyed that process, mostly because I wanted to find people who are real. So, Peter, thank you so much. I just want to spotlight you today. John, who is your spotlight or what? In the course of discussing the, how do I get my stuff to run in the cloud, Richard, you mentioned that you're kind of new to it and you don't have some, like, I'd say, concerns with some of the big guys, right? There's a scrappy little company I've run into called Railway.app. And they're just a few guys who have taken it upon themselves to kind of make it easy to get code into the cloud. And I met those guys a while back. Jake's the guy I met there and he showed me around and... I've been in their Discord for a while observing and I've seen them go from like nobody on their Discord to thousands and more on their Discord. And I think they're really doing a good job of building this like small, scrappy way to get your stuff running in the cloud. It's pretty cool. And I think it's a good thing to combat some of the angst that we discussed earlier about how do you do that in a way that's kind of in favor of the little guy. So he's a good guy. Awesome. I love that railway.app. Get some women on your team, folks. You are all guys, but I'm sure you have people in the Discord. That's okay. I just feel obliged to point that out. Kyle, what's yours? I'm going to go with a big name, but I think it needs a little bit of love. Docker. I'm going to say Docker because right now it's really popular to put them down and to criticize them, and especially with their recent uh, pricing and uh, 
changes, but if it wasn't for them, we wouldn't have a lot of what we have now. It's kind of this uh, source of innovation. A lot of things that we're benefiting from are thanks to them. And not that they invented all container-related tech. It's not the case. They never claimed it, but they made it accessible. They're kind of Apple of infrastructure. You know, before Apple, you had phones, but they transformed how you think of about the phones. And I think Docker did the same with the infrastructure. And I'm really grateful for that and the opportunities that enabled, including for us as well. So, and a lot of smaller projects and a lot of new projects that are happening now are thanks to their contribution. Can't second that enough. Same. They also started as a Y Combinator incubator group. So they were also kind of hackathon-ish at some point. If you know any of the founders or listeners, please send them our way. We would love to have them on this podcast. Also, if you have any thoughts about sustaining open source or any questions about this interview and want to throw them back at us, our discourse is always open. Discourse.sustainoss.org. Yes, this is a small text at the end of the show where I throw in things I should have thrown in earlier. But mainly what I want to say is thank you so much, John and Kyle. This has been great talking to you. I really hope that Slim.ai does really well. It seems like it is at the moment and that you continue to give back to developers and just all the best. Thank you again. Thanks, Richard. Thanks, Eric. Really appreciate your time. Thank you both. 